Today, we are talking about scandals. This week and next week, we are wrapping up this scandal series. And just in case you haven't been here for a while, or maybe this is your very first Sunday, so this scandal series is looking at the life of a guy named David. He's a very famous person in the Old Testament of the Bible. This is the David who slayed Goliath. This is the David who became the king of the nation of Israel about 3,000 years ago, and it's recorded in the Old Testament of the Bible. So we kicked off this series a few weeks ago, and we talked about David's most famous scandal by far, his scandalous relationship with Bathsheba, how he was supposed to be off doing what, what kings were supposed to be doing at that time, but instead he was sitting back, he disengaged, and that led to his downfall. And so instead he sees this beautiful woman who's married and basically he sends for her, he sleeps with her, and then he kills her husband to cover it all up. And man, things just go crazy from there. Last week, if you guys were here and you remember, so now David's kids are grown up and one of his sons Amnon is so just lusting after his half-sister Tamar that he rapes his half-sister. And David is furious about this. But you know what David does about it? Nothing. Nothing at all. He's furious. He does nothing. So time goes by, and one of David's other sons, Absalom, says, you know what? I'm going I'm to do something about it. And so he plots and successfully murders his brother Amnon as retribution for this. And it says that David was devastated. We talked about this last week. David was devastated. But what did he do about it? Nothing. He did nothing whatsoever about it. And so you know what's been hitting me as I sat through service last week and as I've been reading through 2 Samuel, which is the account of uh, of what we're going through with David's life? I'm sitting here going, why didn't he do anything? What was the deal? I mean, if anyone knew the importance of confronting a situation, remember we talked about rumble strips a few weeks ago? If anyone knew how vital it was to have some checks in your life, if anyone knew how important it was to be able to step up and bring his kids back on track, it was David, and he did nothing. Why? You know, I can relate to this whole doing nothing thing. So it was a couple years ago, and um, I was at the church office, and it was a Saturday, and so I was trying to get some work done. There was nobody there. It was totally quiet. Our office space is in this old Baptist church up in Boston, and uh, the pastor who was there was gracious enough to give us office space, and he's like 173 years old. I mean, the guy is so incredibly old, but he's like just a really great guy. And so um, anyway, so I'm sitting in my office there, and, um, and I'm getting some, trying to get some work done, and all of a sudden, I smell this terrible smell. You know, it's that dog poop smell. You just recognize it like instantly, and so I'm like, oh, that's not good. That's got to be on me. And then I, I, I realize that I've got this bad habit where I sit on my shoe, you know? Does anyone, anyone do that? You know, when you're sitting down at your chair, you just kind of like tuck your foot up underneath. So yeah, that's right. It's on my shoe and it's also right there. Now I can't remember, this was a few years ago. I can't remember the exact details because uh, I was trying to recall them uh, last night. But 
I just remember I didn't have time to get back home and change. I had somewhere else I needed to be. And so I needed to get this situation resolved as quickly as possible. So, so now there's nobody there. We used to be down in the basement of this old building. And so there were like two doorways to get like into where my office was. So it was a pretty secure area. So I, I basically just, you know, I, I take the shoes off. I take the pants off. I've got them across the table. And I'm like scrubbing away, trying to get this thing cleaned up in my, in my office. And I'm telling you, I felt like it was a totally secure facility. You, you know what I mean? Like, everything is, is totally cool. I kid you not. You remember the disciples when Jesus just appeared to them in the room? Okay. So I'm, I'm sitting there, okay? And there were two doorways, one of which was locked, okay, that he, that he would have had to go through. The next thing I know, I'm standing there, I'm scrubbing away at my pants, and I'm, I'm getting into it, you know, I'm trying to get these suckers cleaned up. The next thing I know... I just happen to like, in my peripheral, I just, I just look up, and there's Pastor Joe, okay, 173-year-old Pastor Joe, and he's just standing there. He's like, hey, Derek, and he just starts to go into conversation with me. I, I had no idea, you ever have a conversation, you have no idea what they're saying because your, your brain is just, is just totally on overdrive? So he's talking to me about something, parking, I don't even know what it was. He's just talking, like, like it's just a normal conversation. And I'm sitting there, you know, and I'm sitting at the table and I got my, you know, I'm in my underwear, man. I'm just sitting there and I'm like, and he's just talking. I, I, I tell you what, he did not know. He had no idea that I didn't have any pants on. Like, that's how old he is, okay? But I'm, I'm like 10 feet from the guy I and mean, he's got to know. So, so I'm, of course, freaking out. But you know what I did? Nothing. I did nothing. I didn't know what the heck I was supposed to do. So I just smiled and listened and said, okay, Pastor, that's great. Got to gotta go. Got to go. So um, I can relate to this whole nothing thing. Like David, just over and over and over, he's doing nothing, nothing to address this situation. Now today we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 14, okay? And you've got some verses there on your outline. If you want to check those out, they'll be on the screen as well. So this theme continues. Check this out, all right? So now remember, Absalom, David's son, has killed David's other son, Amnon, in retribution for Amnon raping their half-sister, Tamar, okay? So Absalom is, he's like kind of an exile. He's fleed, and he's gone to a place called Geshur, which was 80 miles away from Jerusalem, and he's been living there for the last three years. He's been way out there, okay? So here's where we pick it up. 2 Samuel chapter 14 it says, Joab, son of Zeruiah, and that was one of David's right-hand men, okay? That's all you really need to worry about, Joab. So Joab's one of J- David's right-hand men. It says that Joab knew that the king's heart, this is King David, every time you see the king, you're talking about David here, he knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So Joab sent someone. Now notice this. Did David do anything? His heart longed for Absalom? Did David do anything? No, he did. Once again, the theme, he did nothing once again. So Joab goes out and he finds this woman who's like just, she's an incredible speaker and and kind of an actress type person. And so he gets her to come and pretend like she's a widow, a grieving widow, and tell King David this huge sob story about how she had two sons and one son got really angry with with her other son and killed him. And so she comes before David and she's like, David, I know that according to Jewish law, my other son is supposed to be killed. But please, can we make an exception? Can we, could you have mercy on me? Because I'll have nobody left. I'm a widow. I I have to have my son here to take care of me. 
And so David, of course, he assesses the situation and he says, yeah, of course, we can, we can have mercy. We can, we can work this out. And she turns on him and she says, aha, it's very similar to how David was confronted by the prophet Nathan just two chapters earlier. Okay, they were onto something. Joab knew that this was an effective technique to get David's attention. And so basically she said, now what about your son? What about your son who's heir to the throne, Absalom? Doesn't he deserve mercy as well? Doesn't he deserve a reprieve? And so David realizes, he's like, oh my gosh, Joab put you up to this, didn't he? But, but he, he connects the dots. He's like, okay, fine. That was very persuasive. You know what? That's a good idea. You know, and so, so basically what David does is we see in verse 23, he gives Joab permission to go get Absalom. So it says, then Joab went to Geshur, that's where Absalom was, and he brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But notice this. But the king said, David said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. Now, seeing the king's face, what that meant was that, that Absalom would not be reconciled. He wouldn't be part of the royal court. So he could be in Jerusalem, but he wouldn't actually be next in line for the throne. So, continuing on in verse 28, it says, Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time, but Joab refused to come. So obviously Joab's under orders from King David. This is not going to happen. So then Absalom said to his servants, look, Joab's field is next to mine and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, (laughs) I think he probably said it in a more colorful way than this, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, look, I sent word to you and said, come here, so I can send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? I mean, it would be better for me if I was still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So once again, who's not doing anything? David, okay? Joab is doing stuff, and here's Absalom forcing his father's hand. He's basically like, you know what? I either want forgiveness or kill me, okay? This middle ground, it ain't working for me. So it says Joab went to the king. And he told him this. So then the king, again, this is David, the king, summoned Absalom, his son. And he came in and he bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And it says that the king kissed Absalom. Now, that kiss signified reconciliation. It signified acceptance and respect. But notice what was missing. There was no confrontation about what had happened. There was no repentance over what had been done. None. It was just just total reconciliation. So what we see all through this phase of David's life, where his family, his kids are just going haywire, and there's all this scandal around David, is David isn't doing anything. It's like he's just totally pulled back and he's letting, I mean, he's the king, man. He calls all the shots and he's not leading like a king at all. He's just hanging back and everyone else is doing stuff. He's like the pawn on the chessboard when he's actually controlling all the pieces of the chessboard. Now, why is David doing nothing? Really, this is the core of the issue here. 
Why isn't David doing anything? Well, here's why. David is so completely humbled by his own personal failings, by his own scandal, that he doesn't feel like he can say boo to his sons as they're doing all this crazy stuff. Terrible, twisted, wicked stuff. Basically, here's the deal. David let his past prevent him from engaging in his present. He allowed his past to prevent him from engaging his present. So David wrote a number of the Psalms in the, in the Old Testament. Okay, If you're not familiar with those, there's 150 of them. And David wrote a large chunk, including Psalm 51. Now Psalm 51, David wrote this, and this was his prayer after his affair with Bathsheba. And this is what he writes. Have mercy on me. This is just a little snippet of it. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. He's just crying out to God. I mean, total repentance and sorrow. Man, he's just going after. He's laying it all down before God. But check out these next few words. He says, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. It haunts me day and night. David did an incredible job of asking for forgiveness. Incredible job of that. But you know what he did a terrible job of? Forgiving himself. See, he was so haunted day and night by guilt and shame, and regret. Now, there are many of you who are here today, and you can relate to King David. You're haunted by regret, by guilt, by shame, from things in your past. And maybe you don't always think about them, but in certain moments, maybe certain times when you can't sleep at night, or certain memories that come up, or certain times in church where you know, just all of a sudden it hits you, and you're haunted by things from your past. And there's many of us who are here, and we know, man, we can relate to King David. We're really good at asking God for forgiveness, aren't we? But we're not good at forgiving ourselves, at letting go of the past. Now, if that's you here today, we're going to get to exactly how we do that in just a minute. It's such a terrible feeling, isn't it? When you're just haunted by guilt and shame and regret. There's this song um, that really captures the essence of this idea of being haunted and, and regret and shame. And um, I just got to warn you that um, if you hate country music, okay, this may be the last church service that you ever attend at Grace Community Church, you will not be back. And I just want to say, I'm really sorry. I hope you find a good church, okay? Because the deal is, this isn't just a country music song. This is actually the worst country music song that's ever been produced in the history of country music, okay? This is the, and I'm a country music fan myself, okay? I do like some country music, but this one's the worst one. It's, it's so bad, I actually like it. 
I don't know if you, if you get, the song is so bad. It's like, kind of like watching something unfold that you're like, you can't take your eyes off it like a train wreck. It's like, oh my, it's so bad. Oh, I got to see what happens. So it's that bad. Okay. So um, I just want to warn you in advance that, that that's what's coming. Now we're not, we're just going to sh- just going to do a little clip from this song, but just check out how bad it is, but it's perfect spot on about being haunted by the past. So let's go ahead and let's play that song. I wish I'd have spent more time with my dad when he was alive. Now I don't have the chance. I love how he talks through. Instead of singing, he's just talking. And I wish I'd have told my brother how much I loved him before he went off to war. But I just shook his hand. I wish I'd have gone to church on Sunday morning when my grandma begged me to. I was afraid of God. You guys recognize who this is? Kenny I Chesney? wish I would have listened when they said, Boy, you're gonna wish you had me. But I wouldn't. We're almost oh, done. I, I'd done a lot of things. Different. Okay, that's beautiful. We'll cut it off because you guys are gonna start running for the exits. Okay. So. <laughs> I do have to say this, though. If you, if you hate country music, you should at least thank me because I've actually just done you a favor, okay? I have now given you some, some evidence and an argument that you have about why country music is terrible, okay? You can play Kenny Chesney's A Lot of Things Different, okay? The, the, it actually gets worse, but just for the sake of time and sanity, I won't, I won't go into it, but he does this one thing where he goes, she wanted to paint our bedroom yellow and trim it blues and greens, and I should have done it, but I didn't. <laughs> And he's like, he's like, wouldn't have hurt nothing. It's just, it's so bad. I can't, I, I'm like obsessed with the song. You, you know what I'm saying? I am obsessed with it. But, but here's the thing, okay? Don't, don't miss this point. The reason that the song is so terrible, besides the fact that it's just like, he's butchering grammar and like he's talking through instead of singing the song. The reason that it's so bad is because he's singing a song about a guy who is just stuck in his past. He's haunted by guilt and shame and regret of his whole life. He's looking back and he's just wishing that he could have done a lot of things different. Now, this is what was, this is David. This is David. He was haunted by his past. Now, maybe he was haunted by his past because he didn't know whether God had forgiven him or not. I mean, he cried out to God for forgiveness. But you see, as we talked about last week, God still allows consequences in our lives. So David's experiencing all sorts of consequences for his decisions. And so maybe he's there going, I've asked for forgiveness, but I don't think God's forgiven me. Maybe that's where David was. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not sure if God has forgiven you, when you think about some guilt and some shame and some regret, the things that you've struggled with in your past or maybe still struggling with today, and you're not sure, you've asked God for forgiveness, but you're not sure if God has forgiven you, I want to tell you something. You can be sure. You can absolutely be sure. I want to share a couple of verses with you. And you may not be big into memorizing Bible verses. I can probably only memorize about five out of the whole Bible, but I'll tell you, a couple of these, these are legit, man. These are worth committing to memory, especially 
if you struggle when it comes to issues of forgiveness and regret and guilt, okay? So here's the first one. This is from 1 John 1, 9. Now, this was written by John the disciple, okay? He spent the entire ministry time with Jesus, years and years with Jesus, and he wrote, okay? He wrote to Christians, and basically, he was just proclaiming the truths that Jesus had explained to him. And so this is what John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, it doesn't matter how you feel about this verse. This verse is a promise, okay? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, there are some of you who are here today, and this is your verse. This is your verse. This is not a long verse. This is actually fairly easy to remember. You may actually want to just cut this thing out of your bulletin today and stick it up on your mirror or whatever you've got to do, because this is a verse you need to see Every single day when those other voices and those other thoughts and those other things creep into your head. I'm going to give you one other one in case that was too long for you. I got a shorter one. Um, This is Romans 8.1. Romans is this letter in the New Testament that was written by the Apostle Paul. And it is basically considered to be like if there's one kind of systematic theological explanation of Christianity, like Romans is like the best one to take a look, okay? It lays the whole thing. Here's the deal about Christianity. And in Romans 8.1, it says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. So what that means is if you are here today and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, okay, and you have said, Jesus, I believe that you are God who came to this earth, lived a life I couldn't live, and died for my sins. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for you. This is a promise. And this one is huge for me, you guys. Huge for me. I remember going through a season a few years back where, and we've all been in seasons like this, right? So I had a season where I just could not get motivated in terms of my faith. I could not get motivated in terms of my relationship with God. Then I remember just not wanting to to have my personal prayer time. I could still, you know, pray for other people, but I, I just couldn't, when it came to me, I couldn't pray. I just felt like I had this block. I had no motivation to read the Bible and I just, I was just like in this spiritual desert place. Now, you've been there. You've been there in different seasons of your life. You know, you haven't felt like coming to church. You just kind of slipped off or you, you just kind of disengaged and you didn't want to, but it just happened and you're trying to figure out why. You think you feel guilty for that? Try being a pastor. <laughs> Try having to stand up here when you're going through a real dry spell where it's really hard. Man, now there's some guilt, man. And I remember talking to a good friend of mine, and man, he quoted Romans 8.1 to me when I was just beating myself up over this whole thing. I felt so lousy. It's because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? There's no condemnation. Man, that was just, it was so freeing. It was so liberating 
for me. I cannot tell you. There are some of you here, and this is your verse, okay? Don't worry about trying to memorize the whole Bible or whatever. There may be just one verse you need, and this could be your verse. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you want to know if you've forgiven, if you have confessed your sins, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it is a promise that you are forgiven and there is no condemnation. Amen. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Now, you may be like, okay, Derek, that's great. You know, that's great. And and I get that, and man, those verses are cool, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to memorize one of those, or maybe you already have one of those kind of memorized. You're like, and that's awesome, but God's forgiven me. But see, here's my problem, Derek. So often, I just don't feel worthy of God's forgiveness. See, my problem is, I just don't feel worthy. Based on what I've done, I don't feel worthy of God's love and his forgiveness and this grace that he offers to us. Now, if that's you today, or maybe you've had times when you felt that, okay, you've had seasons, I want you to listen so, so carefully to what I'm about to say next, because for some of you, the whole reason that you are here today is to hear what I'm about to say right now. If you are in a place where you don't feel worthy of God's love and his forgiveness and his grace, here's the deal. It's not about feeling worthy. In fact, it's impossible. Check this out. Romans 3, 23. We already talked about Romans, okay? It's a great, great section of the Bible. Romans 3, 23 says, for everyone has sinned, okay? And when that word, that word everyone, you know what that means? Everyone, okay? All right, so everyone has sinned. We've all messed up, okay? Some of us more than others, everyone in different ways, but no one has lived a perfect life. And so we fall, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. We are not perfect as God is perfect. And so here's the deal. If you're striving to try and feel worthy of God's love and his grace and forgiveness, here's the truth. No one is worthy. Do you see Listen, listen, there are some of you and you've been in this cycle and for the rest of your life, you could be going in this cycle, but today could be the day that you break free from this idea that you have to be worthy of God's grace and his love and his forgiveness. No one is worthy. It's impossible to feel worthy. In fact, do you guys know what the definition of grace is? Grace, God's grace, not Grace Community Church, the actual theological term. The definition of grace is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. It means favor that we don't deserve, we couldn't earn. It's just a gift from God. No one is worthy of God's forgiveness, of his grace. No one. And in fact, if you're here today, I hate to do this to some people, but if you're here today and you feel worthy of God's grace, watch out. (laughs) I'm serious. Because that really means you don't need Jesus, right? You don't need any help. You're just, you're good, man. There were some people in the Bible that felt that way. They were called the Pharisees. You may want to read about some of Jesus' dealings with them. That'd be on your own time. That's another sermon. But there is no one who is worthy of God's grace, okay? So here's the deal. This is my only fill-in for today. This is so huge. So the goal is not to feel worthy. It's impossible. The goal is to be grateful. 
for what he's done. And there are some of you here and you have never fully forgiven yourself and fully received God's forgiveness. And the reason that you haven't is because you haven't felt worthy. And I am here to tell you today the greatest news. (laughs) We're not. You don't have to be. That's not the goal to strive to find worthiness. That's not it. All we do instead is we say, thank you, God. Thank you for what you've done. You are worthy, Jesus. You lived a life that I couldn't live. And every day we practice gratitude. That's what we do. You don't try and reach for worthiness. That's only going to lead you to be a Pharisee, to be a religious, uh, just an obnoxious person, okay? Every day we practice gratitude for what God has done. The goal is not to feel worthy. The goal is to be grateful for what God has done. Now, one more thing, and then we're done. So David, he just couldn't get over his guilt and his shame and his regret. He just, the scandal just consumed him, and he let his past prevent him from engaging his present. But you know what? There's another guy in history very, very famous guy. Probably the two most famous people in the Bible are David and then this one other guy that I'm about to talk about. And this other guy had a very similar story to David. Tremendous scandal in his life. In fact, this guy, okay, before he was known as the guy that we know today, the great Christian that we know today, this guy was rounding up Christians and he was overseeing their execution. This guy, whose name was Paul, the Apostle Paul, the famous Paul who wrote much of the New Testament that we read today, the one who started churches all around the Mediterranean Rim and is largely known as the greatest Christian to ever live. This guy, his past was an absolute train wreck until he had an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ and it changed everything for him. Okay? Now, Paul and David both had very similar pasts. Okay? Tremendous guilt and regret and shame over what they had done. But something was different for Paul. He was able to move past it all. You know, if you're Paul and you're realizing that you've lived your life, basically, and you just had an awakening and you just, you just experienced Jesus, and now you've realized that everything you lived for, basically, was to fight against what is really true and life-giving, okay? In that moment, Paul could have just crawled in a hole and died. You know what I'm saying? Can you imagine walking into like a church meeting and being like, hey guys, yeah, sorry, I just killed some of your friends and, you know, it's really sorry about your dad and that was really bad of me, you know, but I I, I got it figured out now. I mean, can you imagine how that would have felt? He's walking into some of these circles and talking to some of these disciples. But Paul did something different and we find it in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, okay? Both had similar paths, but their futures were radically different. Don't miss this. This is what Paul writes. He says, he's writing to a church in Philippi, okay? And he says, brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. What he's saying is, guys, I haven't arrived yet, okay? I'm not all there yet. He says, but one thing I do, check this out. This is the differentiator between David and Paul. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, 
I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I'm going to say that again. The one thing that he does, don't miss this, is forgetting what is behind, leaving his past in the past, and straining toward. I love that. I love that wording. It's not easy, man. He's straining toward, getting distance himself from the path, straining towards what is ahead. He presses on towards a new goal, to follow after Jesus, to live a new life. See, here's the deal. Paul didn't let his past prevent him from engaging the present. Both David and Paul cried out for forgiveness. But where Paul leaves David in the dust is Paul is able to forgive himself. He's able to forget what is behind him and strain on toward what is ahead. Do you see how how unbelievable this is? David's reign ended terribly. Paul's legacy is amazing to this day. And they both have the exact same past. There are many of us who are here in this room right now. And there's something that resonates when you hear that we're letting our past prevent us from engaging our present. There's many of us who we know that our past is holding us back. There's many of us, and we just need to cling to this verse and forget what is behind. We've learned lessons, we've experienced consequences, yet we've evaluated, we're making sure we're not going to do that again, okay? But then at some point, we got to put the past in the past and forget what's behind and strain. It's not easy. Strain toward what is ahead. Do we have any uh, Disney fans out there? Any Disney fans in the house? All right. So, man, we're big Disney fans in my house. I have three kids, nine, seven, and five, right? And so, um, you know that, that new Disney movie that came out, Frozen? Okay. Number of you, I know a lot of you don't have kids. You've still seen it. It's okay. You can be, it's okay. It's cool. Um, so that, that movie, Frozen, very, very popular. All right. Very popular. And so um, that, there's a song that basically is the theme song and it's very catchy, and for me, it's very annoying, all right? And it's this song, yeah, very funny. So, I uh, see so you've seen the movie, and you've sang the song many times. All right, so it's this song, Let It Go, okay? It's the song, Let It Go. And what happens is, in my house, from time to time, someone will be, you know, all worked up about something, or there'll be some major conflict in, in my house. I know it's hard to believe with, like, pastor's kids, because, you know, they're perfect and all that stuff, but, but there, there'll be some sort of crazy drama going on with, some, you know, some of the five of us in the house, right? And all of a sudden, the house will just bust into song. You know, someone will just bust into, let it go, let it go, right? Now, now, here's the thing. No, no. All right. Now, listen, listen. Here, so here's the deal. When that happens, that's incredibly irritating. <laughs> incredibly irritating. Now, it's not just irritating for me. It's actually irritating for everyone in my house except the one person who keeps busting out the song. Okay? So all I have to tell you is that me and all my kids get so annoyed. Okay? Because literally... All of a sudden, something's going on, and all of a sudden, 
You just, you just hear it, right? And here's the thing about my wife, Becky, okay? Here's the thing. She was one of those, like, in high school, she was in the musicals and stuff. You know what I'm saying? And I love, I love theater people and all that. I mean, you guys are awesome. You're, I mean, I, I sincerely, I, it's such a cool talent. I wish I had it, okay? But there's part of that that still lives in her. So, so when she sings out, let it go, she has to do this thing. So it's like, she, she says, and we've talked about it. She can't help it. It's just like involuntary. So, she, so she'll be like this, let it go, let it go. And she, she does this, you know, she, be, she gets on a stage. It drives us crazy. My kids are rolling their eyes. I didn't even know five-year-olds could roll their eyes. You know what I'm saying? So it's so incredibly frustrating. But here's the thing. It is so true, is it not? This is so good. When we think about our guilt and our shame and our regret and our past, and we think, man, there's a lot of things I'd have done different. Kenny Chesney, okay? When we think about that, there are times where we just have to forget what is behind and we have to strain toward what is ahead and we just have to let go of the past, put the past in the past. So what I'd like for us to do now is to bow our heads and to pray. God, we just want to say thank you for um, these very real and raw stories that we find in the Bible. We thank you for the truths that they contain. Lord, there are many of us in this room and we know that we are holding on to stuff in our past and it's standing in the way of us effectively living out our present, God. We need your help. Just with your um, eyes closed and your, your heads bowed, just in a spirit of prayer, I just want to acknowledge that there are many of you who are here right now. And maybe like me, you're holding on to stuff. You're holding on to, to guilt or to regret or to shame. And I just want to say, if that's you, you're here today and you know that you're holding on to stuff. You've got some stuff in your past or maybe some current struggles that you're dealing with. I just want you to just kind of acknowledge that by just clenching your fists right where you are. Just, just clench your fists. It's kind of a symbol of the fact that, that you're holding on to some stuff. Now, maybe your fist right now is, is clenched around some guilt about your past, some things that you did a long time ago. You've asked for forgiveness, but you really, you still think about it. You still kind of wish you could change some things. Or maybe your fist is clenched around something that you feel guilty about right now. It's a struggle that haunts you to this day because it's still a struggle for you that you're trying to break free from. But whatever it is, with our fists clenched right now, we just want to take a moment in this spirit of prayer and just acknowledge the truth, the promise that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And we thank you for this, God, because this isn't based on whether we feel worthy. It has nothing to do with that. It's about the fact that, Jesus, you are worthy of offering that forgiveness. For those of us who've been stuck trying to feel worthy, maybe that's what we've wrapped our fists around this morning. Help us 
just to be grateful. Thank you for your forgiveness. Now, the reality is that God has already forgiven us. God has already released it. He's already let it go. There are many of us right now, and as we clench our fists, we realize that we need to let it go. And so as a gathered community, as a church right now, we just release our hands. So just go ahead, just just whatever that is, just open up your fist. Just let go of your grip. God has already released it. It's already gone. Just let go. Whatever it is, just release it. Let God have it. He's big enough to take it. He's already forgiven it. God, right now we just release those things to you. Not because we're worthy, but precisely because we're not, but because we're grateful. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.